find Adam. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. Good morning, Dr. Alice Williamson. Good morning, Ruby. How are you? I am feeling very, very good. We were chatting just before about uh, there's there's a new way of measuring time. It's not uh, what is it BC or anything like that. It's it's BS. Oh yeah, and AS. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, before Solange and after Solange. And I'm now after Solange too. It took me a couple more days than you, but what a concert. Yeah, I saw her on Saturday. I had a fantastic experience and then you got to see her last night. And even though you're feeling a little bit sick, it might have been just kind of like a, a, a warm bowl of chicken soup. Yeah, it was. It was so joyful. Such a wonderful performance. But yeah, I feel like we really saw something really special. Definitely. Uh, hopefully she'll come back soon. Hopefully she'll, uh, she enjoyed her Sydney trip so much that she'll do an Aussie tour so that everybody else can have an opportunity to see her. Because she did four nights in a row at the Opera House, which is insane. Uh, but anyway, let's dive into some science, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so firstly, I didn't uh, know this, but um, science has known for a while that opossums have a particular thing in their body that can uh, make them immune to snake bites. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So um, I found out about this research this week. Um, uh, a researcher, a female scientist, Professor Claire Kamises, has actually found um, a pattern that's published by another female scientist in the mid-90s. Um, and she found that um, there is immunity in possums and that, well, she found out why there's immunity in opossums. I have to say this correctly. So opossums are distant relatives of the possums that we have here in Australia but possums in Australia are actually more closely related to the marsupials over here but they yeah. live in America they look different they, they do look, look kind different. of like pointy raccoons yeah they look a bit more like that mm. but sometimes they're called possums in America too so we can use that interchangeably but we're not talking about the ones in Australia oh possums but they have um, a protein inside their bodies which has which renders them immune to the bites of many venomous snakes right. and um, the first scientist in the mid 90s, um, Binny V. Lips, she found that it was actually the first 10 amino acids of this protein. So this is a relatively, well, very small fraction of this protein compared to the many, many amino acids that make it up were responsible for this immunity and she patented this right. um, and then Professor Claire Camise came along she's a chemical engineer from San Jose State University she was going on sabbatical she wanted to do some research into this snake venom and she was going to India to do some research on her sabbatical and she found um, a cheaper way to make this peptide, so to make this se- this series of amino acids. And she did this by making E. coli make this peptide for her oh. and very cleverly kind of making it in very long, um, well, not very long, but longer strands. So not making one 10 amino acid peptide and then another, but kind of, if you imagine almost like sausages, rather than making one sausage at once, she's kind of made a string of sausages or a string of amino acids. Some links. And then... <laughs> And then um, another enzyme can go in and chop the sausage or chop the amino acid chain to give um, more of this peptide. So she managed to make enough of this peptide to start seeing, you know, what could this do against different types of snake venom? So one of the first um, tests that they did was actually in in mice. And they found that if they injected mice with this, um, this amino acid chain, these 10 amino acids, 
And then they injected um, the the mice with the venom of a a very venomous poisonous snake. Um, In the control group of eight mice um, who hadn't been given any peptide, they all died overnight. Mm. But the other group of mice um, survived for weeks. And they found this with a couple of different types of snake venom. Wow. And the thing that's really interesting about this research is that they keep on trying this. So they've tried some of these these studies have been in mice and some of them have been in dishes. So they've been looking at how the amino acids can interact with the, the venom just in a dish rather than in a living system, which is it's not as good as testing something in a living system because there's a whole load of complicated things going on. But it yeah. can tell you something about the interactions. And they found that this this particular series of um, amino acids seems to be pretty good at um, either neutralizing all or some of the effects of lots of different types of snake venom. And that's the thing that's really cool about this research. So we already have kind of some anti-venoms for some snake venoms. Yes. But will this one be able to cover more snake venoms? So it's, it's, not, it's, not in, um, it's not been clinically trialed. It's not commercially available yet. But I think it's a really exciting time to talk about this science because the way that um, most snake um, venom antidotes... Um, work is that they have been um, they've been discovered or they've been basically made to um, neutralize one type of snake venom and generally they're actually um, grown in horses so a horse oh. is injected with some snake venom and then the horse produces antibodies that can destroy some of the enzymes or the proteins um, structures inside the venom and then we use those antibodies to give to horse um, not horse bite excuse me snake bite victims um, <laughs> so they work really well there's lots of anti-venom that's why that's why people milk snakes to get the venom so they can f- um, create the anti-venom mm. but they're very specific so it would mean if you got bitten by um, one specific type of say a, a red belly um, brown snake is a red belly black snake I've got them mixed red up red belly black excuse me get my snakes mixed up and um, then you would take an antidote for that particular type of snake right. but another type of antidote wouldn't work because they're very specific and so I can imagine that if you're in like a like a third world country or something like that you probably won't have access to a specific snake's antivenom well that's the thing so it's actually um with these antivenoms that are are made from horses or from the antibodies from horses rather um these need to be administered in hospital and often the thing with something like a a venomous bite is you need to treat it as soon as possible Mm. so getting somebody who's in a remote area or where there's not much infrastructure not many hospitals to a place where they can be, be administered with the appropriate venom and also you have to be able to identify what snake uh, actually bit the person because sometimes you might you may not have even seen the snake or the person may not be able to tell you what what bit them so if you could have some kind of universal or almost universal anti-venom that would be extremely useful and one of the things that the researchers are keen to to talk about in terms of this structure because it still might need some tinkering it's not there yet but it seems to be quite soluble in saline solution and pretty stable so it could be possible to store it in something a bit like an EpiPen or an inhaler and just have you know 
um, a collection of these in different places, um, remote places, so that at least somebody could be administered with the antivenom and then taken to hospital, which would obviously reduce the, the time or the severity of the onset of any of the effects and give them longer to get to hospital to even maybe have the specific antivenom. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, I think it's. I think I'm really, I'm really interested to watch where this goes next. They'll have to do um, more trials. The next thing that they'll probably do is test this in cats and dogs because um, there's a huge number of cats and dogs that are bitten in the U.S. every year, about hundred thousand, and they're often t- um, bitten by snakes from the family um, where the copperhead snakes and rattlesnakes belong to. So if they can test this in cats and dogs and perhaps see, you know some positive effects here that would be very promising for human trials later on and we can save some cats and dogs yeah that's cool <laughs> and they know the structure of this peptide these these you know this they know the structure of these 10 peptide um link so the, the other thing is that they can make small chemical modifications to different parts of this molecule and they can maybe even make it even better or even more suitable for humans so we're not there yet it's definitely not on the market but mm. i think sometimes it's good to have a look at some science that's in progress and see how these ideas develop mm. and hopefully when they make it it'll be cheap enough that it'll be able to go everywhere yeah well i think that's the aim because because of this um this uh, kind of breakthrough in terms of the cheaper synthesis and mm. the stabilization which might be able to scale up because they've managed to grow it in e coli so if you get lots of e coli in a big tank you could grow lots of this particular peptide um it means that um it should be very cheap and it is indeed very cheap at the moment which is obviously very important because accessibility to things like this kind of healthcare are what we really need. That sounds really cool. I don't want to bring things uh, too much off topic here, but when you told me that opossums uh, had an immunity to snake bites, it reminded me of that honey badger video. Oh, no, I I haven't seen that one. Oh, (laughs) it's funny. It's like uh, a video about the honey badger. Apparently honey badgers are reasonably immune to snake bites, or I guess they must have, like... I don't really know whether it's the same thing as opossums, but there's oh. a video about a honey badger getting um, like attacked by snakes and it just kind of keeps going. Oh, that would make sense. I think I'll, I'll try and have a look into that and see if I can come back with an update next week. But um, maybe it's a similar... <laughs> maybe it could even be the same series of peptides or it could be something completely different but maybe that's another avenue for exploration. Definitely. You heard it here first yeah. from Ruby. I think the voiceover guy just said that he didn't give a shit, and that was what his superpower was. <laughs> we're right in the middle of Up and Adam with Dr. Alice Williamson. We were just talking snake anti-venoms that were found in opossums in the US, and we're kind of keeping that rodent theme going now. Are opossums rodents? Not really? No, marsupials. Marsupials! Okay, well, cute sewer dwellers, then. Uh, <laughs> because now we are talking about mice, and we're talking about sugar. This is a good one because I've got a pretty bad sugar addiction. Ah, oh, well, maybe this one's one for you. <laughs> although one, I got really excited about this, actually. <laughs> although I don't know if you'll be a fan of the, the method to deal with this one, yeah. but, but we'll have a chat about it. Yeah, this is some interesting research that's been published in Nature um, mm. this week or last week um, that's come out of Columbia University. And I love that this research is all about sugar and the lead author is called um, Charles Zucker and he's from the Zuckerman Institute and Zucker means sugar in German, so it's just been entertaining <laughs> me. But um, it's some very sugary scienti- science here. So 
this this team of researchers have done some really interesting research, lots of really interesting research in the past. But one of the things that they they did was that they identified um, the cells in the the mouth and the tongue of a, a mouse that that are linked to the different. Um, taste that, uh, that we experience so salty sour bitter sugar and umani mm. and um so they've they've done some more research which is really interesting where they've actually been able to see the parts of the brain that seem to be linked to the enjoyment and detection of sugar so they found that um by looking at brain imaging they can see that when um a mouse eats something that's sugar or bittery bitter in taste sugary or bitter in taste that some neurons in a part of the brain in um called the insular cortex um seem to light up when they, when they look at this um the, the brain different imaging. parts in the brain or both so there these parts of the insular cortex this is where the the detection of this type of um taste is is registered mm, one but, part for bitter and one part for sugar um so i think there are different parts that that indicate these two different tastes but right. they the thing that's really interesting about this research is that they seem to be linked to a part of the brain called the amygdala which is linked quite strongly with our emotions and by doing some interesting tests on some mice, by um, uh, genetically modifying some neurons in this part of the brain in the amygdala and making them responsive to to light and putting some optical fibres in the brain, they're able to switch on or kind of fire these neurons at different times. And what they've been able to do is actually, um, when they're kind of switching on the sweet neurons if if that's a, that's a bit of a simplification but let's say they're switching them on and they give a mouse water to drink which is pretty neutral in its taste they really go for the water they just can't stop drinking it and when they um switch on the kind of bitter part neurons in the brain they're not interested in the water at all yeah. so it seems to be linked to this this response this emotional response this kind of you know, sort of pleasure of, of, of this of, of this taste. So you could zap my brain and make me eat a bowl of broccoli, perhaps. Perhaps, but I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that. Um, but they also found that if they um, stimulated these different parts of the brain um, in different rooms and they made a, a room be associated with the bitter or the sweet taste, it would either turn them onto the room or turn them off the room, oh. um, which is pretty interesting. And in some mice that didn't have this these neurons functioning, in the amygdala they've been turned off and um, they no longer were really interested in sweet foods any more than bitter foods so they usually turn down bitter foods and really go for sugary foods and there was no longer this real um joy for eating sugary foods or this you know this 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 real insatiable attitude um towards lapping up those sugary drinks yeah. and that's really interesting because um they, they could still tell the difference between the sweet and bitter foods because they tested them on you know putting different types of foods in different parts of a maze or behind different doors so it wasn't that the mice couldn't taste the difference it was more like there wasn't the response in the brain in response to to eating the sugary food which could be um quite interesting if this maps into humans which is likely to have a similar pathway um that it could map into humans and maybe help to understand why we really have such a sweet tooth or such Mm -hmm. um uh, why we enjoy eating sugary foods quite so much is would there be some weird consequences with making unsweet things taste sweet or vice versa or well, seem sweet? Well, I um I think there would be because I mean I think people 
generally think that um, the reason that we love sugary things and really turn up our noses at bitter uh, foods has been a, it's, it's evolved in us to protect us. So the the way that we really crave sugary foods, it means that we go for high calorie foods, which has been very useful in past times yes. when uh, food wasn't readily available, when you had to go and you know hunt and gather it. It means that you should really go for something that's high in calorie because you get a lot more calories for your effort. But bitter foods are generally unsafe. So they're things that could be poisonous or or dangerous. So um, it's something that, you know, has generally evolved to kind of protect us. But now our love of sugary and sweet and highly calorific foods is problematic because we're no longer expending so much energy to go and look for the food. It's not quite as much effort to head down to Woolworths. I find that's always so funny to think that um, plants like chilies and onions and stuff, the whole reason they were made like that is so people wouldn't really eat them. And then here we go. Yeah, well, we've evolved to enjoy them and to cook them and to make them taste much better, I guess. Do you think there's any positive impacts with this whole brain rewiring thing? Could it help, like, um, eating disorders and stuff like that? I think that's what the researchers are looking at. I mean, obviously, these things are really, really complicated. It's the, the, the reasons that people have eating disorders are extremely complex and, and very different for different people. Um, but perhaps this could be more useful for people who are kind of more, haven't got an eating disorder just like eating a bit too much sugary food Mm. and maybe it's it's an important it's important to know how these pathways work it's always important to learn something about our brains because there's still so much to learn so every piece of insight we have is great but perhaps we're not going to go as far as you know genetically modifying neurons in the brain or stimulating them with optical fibers but maybe we could think about ways to retrain our own behavior retrain our brain to to not seek out this pleasure in the same way it could be quite useful. Yeah, that does sound really interesting and I feel like it's kind of like um, going to see a a hypnotist or something to be like, whenever you taste sweet food, it will now taste crappy. (laughs) I think I need that. Have you thought about that as a second career? I'm just like, yeah, I think I I, I really want to go see a hypnotist so that I stop eating so much chocolate because it's getting bad, honestly. I'm too addicted. To oh no! So uh, this this could be something in the future. Maybe I could just pop into that uh, mice lab and see if they can rewire my brain real quick. Yeah, I don't think they're looking for human <laughs> volunteers just yet. Not but. yet. There, uh, I'm first in line. Then, thank you, Dr. Alice, for coming in for another episode of Up and Adam. It's a pleasure. I'll catch you next week. See you next week. <laughs>